chapter 7. So, in the book of Hebrews, so far, we have looked at, there's been several warnings. Now, what he's been teaching is that Jesus is better than any other thing, any other religious system, any other thing that we can put our trust in. And for the Jews specifically, he writes to the Jewish Christians, and he says, Jesus is better than everything that your Jewish religion has taught you to this point. All the stuff that was part of the Israelite religion really was shadows and types and, and things that would lead up to and show us Jesus. Even the tabernacle and the way that it was you know, manifested and the way that they got instructions on how to place everything in the temple and the incense altar and the altar where they would make sacrifices and the, the place to, to wash the sacrifices and the, the bread and the presence of God and, and all of those things, even the, the design that was put on the veil inside the temple we're going to see was actually a foretaste of what the real tabernacle or the real temple is like. And that temple is not made by human hands, but it's actually in heaven. And so all of these things were good, but Jesus is better than them. He's the fulfillment of them. And so he's talked about the law. He's talked about Moses. He's talked about angels even, the most amazing of the created beings. And what he says is that Jesus is better than them. And so as we get to chapter 7, I want to kind of review some of the warnings that the writer has given us. He warns us in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, that we be careful not to drift from the faith. Uh, like a boat that's sitting on a stream, we need to, to be careful because if we're not focused on where we're going, we can actually drift from our target and not even realize it if we're not focused on where we're headed. And so the antidote to drifting in the faith is to listen to God's voice for yourself. Your duty, if you want to call it that, or your get-to as a Christian is that God wants to speak to you. He has already spoken to you through His Son, and so you have the privilege of hearing His voice through reading His Word, through prayer, uh, individual relationship with Him. And then as you listen to what He has to say to you, we get uh, to look at His Word that never changes. He says something to you, it's not going to change. So we need to listen for His voice and hear it. So chapter 3, verse 7 through 4.13, he says, be careful not to doubt what he has said. It's one thing to listen, it's another thing to trust what we've heard. He says, listen and believe. And the word believe really is just another rendering of the word trust. Trust what he said, trust what he shows you. And then in chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, uh, verse 20, he says, avoid becoming dull towards the word of God. And the word dull really just means lazy listener. And if you've ever been around uh, classrooms very long and you've watched your students, if you're a teacher, all of us teach somebody, right? If you've got kids, if you've got people you work with, if you've got relatives, younger relatives, older relatives, we're always teaching things to each other. We're transferring knowledge. And if you've ever tried to have a discussion with somebody that's not listening to you, it is one of the most frustrating things you can experience because you feel like you're wasting your oxygen. You're wasting your energy. It's exhausting to talk to somebody that you know. You can tell by the glaze in their eye that they're not listening. And so he says, um, don't become dull towards the word of God. Now, he says, listen, and then believe, and then 
put to practice what you've learned. If you take what you learn and you hear it, but you never put it to practice, many times you don't use it, you lose it, right? I learned that in math class early on. If I listened in the class and I wrote down notes, but I never went back to them before the test, if I never did the, the homework, whether it was going to get rated or not, I, I didn't get to practice it. And when test time came, I had no idea what we learned six weeks ago. And so, and the same thing is true in Christian faith, where if we don't put our faith to practice, then we lose it. And actually, in chapter 6, verse 14, he says something about that. Chapter 6, verse 14 of Hebrews, he says this. I say 6, verse 14, but I bet it's 5, verse 14. Yep, it is. I'm really good at the notes this morning. Chapter 5, verse 14, he says this. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he's talking about food, and we drink milk, and we use our bodies, and kids start to crawl as they drink milk, and then as they get stronger, they need more protein to build muscles that are breaking down and needing refilled and and so as they start to eat meat, they only need to eat meat because they're using their strength to do other things. And so, um, I don't know about you guys, but I think as Americans, many times we, because we're, I can't, I th- I'm going to generalize. So not everyone is this way. But as a culture, I think many of us nowadays either sit behind a desk or tell people what to do or we, you know, we're not super active during the day, but we have plenty of food. And so what happens is we eat and eat and eat, and we never get hungry because we don't know what hunger is. The, me- the next meal is always promised, right? And so many times, if, if you're like me, okay, I'll say it that way. I can say it distinctly that way. I sit at a desk, and, and I love it because I don't beat up my body, but I hate it because your body needs a little bit of beating up to be able to stay strong. You know, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm starting to put on the mid-30s weight. And though I may not look like I'm very large to you, I am the mo- I'm, I'm weighing the most I've ever weighed. And so to me, I'm having this little, like, mid-midlife crisis where I'm going, okay, what's going on? Well, when I eat all the time and I don't move that much and use the strength, I start to become less hungry, but I eat anyway. And spiritually if we will put to practice and use the meat that God's feeding us to do what his word says to do, guess what you're going to be hungry for more of? You're going to be hungry for more of God's word because you're going to be unsatisfied. You're going to, you can eat a meal, but if you're doing the work of the Lord, it's not a natural work. You need spiritually fed. So he says those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern the difference between good and evil. And then you're going to be confronted with evil things in your life and go, is that evil or not? I'm not sure. And you're going to have to go look somewhere for advice on, on what this means and to know the difference between good and evil. So anyway, I say all that to say that he's, he's told them in this very next uh, part of the passage in chapter 6. Can you click the easy worship? program I can't click my button because it's not clicked on oh thanks all right we got this all right thank you very much 
So in chapter 6, or chapter 5, he mentions this man in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. And as he's talking to them about spiritual growth, he makes this kind of offhanded but true comment about maturity spiritually. And he mentions Melchizedek in chapter 5, verse 5 through 11. But at the end there, in chapter 5, he says, sorry, verse 10, and really verse 9, he says, and having been perfected, talking about Melchizedek, he became the author of eternal salvation, kind of comparing Melchizedek to Jesus. So in verse 10, he says, called by God as the high priest, speaking of Jesus, according to the order of this man that seems mysterious in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. He's only mentioned twice. He's mentioned in Genesis, and he's mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4. He says in verse 11, though, he says to this group, the Hebrew Christians, he says, of whom we have much to say. There's much to learn from him. But it's hard to explain because you're not mature enough to learn it. Now, that's kind of heavy words. That's kind of strong words for Christians because we don't like to be told when we're not mature. I mean, if you look at children and you say, I'd love to take you to such and such that you really want to go to, but I don't think you're mature enough to handle it. How do they respond to that? They high-five you and say, you're the best dad or you're the best mom ever. You're the best teacher ever. You know, and, um, but the reality is there are some things that God doesn't show us because we're not mature enough to, believe, to hear them yet. So, so the question becomes, how do I become more mature? And so the author is saying, I'd like to explain this to you, but it's hard because you're not mature. And maturity in this case seems to be implied that it's defined for the Christian by our grasp of the glimpses of the Messiah or Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, how many people have you talked to that have said, and maybe you haven't, that say, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. I don't think we need to know anything from the the Old Testament. Well, if you run into that person, or maybe you are that person, I want to submit to you the fact that two-thirds of this Bible we carry around is Old Testament. So if you only have the New Testament and you read some of the things that it's saying and you have a hard time understanding it, I would suggest to you that it's not because they don't make sense, it's because you don't have the backstory. If you're watching Star Wars in some cases and you don't understand a certain episode, somebody's going to look at you that's a Star Wars nerd and go, well, you haven't seen the prequels. You didn't see episode two. Now, for you guys that are like four, five, and six were way better, you're going, who cares about those episodes? You can have all you need. But in Scripture, it's no different. If, if you're not going to read the prequel, if you're not going to read the backstory, you're never going to understand the fulfillment of the backstory and the happy ending. It's not going to make any sense to you. It's all going to be kind of intrinsic to your lack of understanding or maturity. So he says their immaturity was due to their dull hearing. So whether or not they, they understand the Old Testament or even read it, they're already dull of hearing. And so they're lazy listeners towards God. But notice they were listening. It's not that they weren't listening at all. It's just that they weren't listening well. I have a picture for you there of what I would like to call a rendering or a drawing of a lecture hall. Now, all of you, I'm sure, at some point or another, have been in one of those cases. You got the girl that's reading some sort of magazine, probably Glamour, or, you know, I'm, I'm typecasting. 
Uh, you got somebody that is um, on their phone texting. You got a guy on the left, he's like probably watching some cat video or, you know, somebody whacking somebody else with a stick, and it's funny. It is. Um, and then on the right, um, somebody drawing. And on the bottom, somebody just snickering and talking. Probably love birds. And then you got my favorite guy on the bottom who is drooling all over himself. Now, this is a caricature, obviously. You don't have to be outwardly doing these things to be distracted while God's trying to teach you things. Now, we all laugh at those guys because we're like, I've either been that or, you know, who cares? It was arithmetic. I never used that. But spiritually speaking, how many of us would get so upset at kids that wasted the education that they were afforded to them, and yet, spiritually speaking, how many of us do that week in and week out and don't even realize it? How many of us, God's, God is speaking to you, by the way. If you're a person that says, I don't know, I'm not like a super spiritual person, so I don't think that God's really trying to speak to me. Every father speaks to his children, or tries to. They don't always speak in a way that you're used to hearing, but dads long to teach their kids things, even if they're ridiculous things. And so our Heavenly Father is better than that because He's teaching us things that are eternal, things that we need to hear daily, moment by moment. He's speaking in His still, small voice. And my question is, are you like the Hebrews who were listening, they were showing up, they were checking the box, they were doing what they were supposed to do, but they were not hearing what God was specifically saying to them? Are you distracted? Are you perhaps tuned out? I wonder how noisy their lives were. I wonder what things that they had allowed into their lives that were actually crowding out the voice of God, maybe even good things. And because they made them more important than God's voice, they were missing out on the fullness and the blessing and the joy. And so what or whose voices are you allowing to speak into your life? And are you ever willing to turn them off for long enough for more than 15 minutes and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me today? I, I submit to you that I, I have a noisy life. As a pastor, there are more voices coming at me, and I don't have that much capacity to receive much anyway. And, and at the same time, God's calling me to set apart time just to hear him. You know, when Jesus took the two disciples with him up onto the the Mount of Transfiguration, and they got there in that special place, and Jesus somehow let himself be open so that they could actually see him in all of his full glory. He said he was brighter than any launderer could get white clothes. It was that bright. And when they got up there, there was Elijah, and there was Moses. They showed up, and it was like this, this heavenly meeting going on, and these two men got to watch. And Peter, who was a lot like me, actually looked at them and he said, man, it's great that we're here. <laughs> Stating the obvious. He said, maybe we should build a tabernacle for these guys and for you. And then we can all just stay up here and hang out because it's easy on top of the mountain. And, and God spoke from heaven at that moment because they had equated Moses and Elijah as equals with Jesus. And so God intervenes and speaks out loud to Peter and says, this is my son, hear him. Moses, Elijah, great guys, not me. Jesus is the voice you need to focus on, Peter. 
And so uh, I would just encourage you this morning as we go through that, basically saying, listen to God's voice, and if you're not, why not? What other thing are you listening to instead? So chapter 6, he encourages them to mature, and he spends a whole chapter on that. He says, show diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end so that you do not become sluggish, but instead imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Imitate those who went before us. Maybe for you it's not an Old Testament saint. Maybe you can't relate, but maybe for some of you, you relate to Jacob. Maybe for some of you, you relate to Abraham. Maybe for some of you, you're more of a Jonah. Maybe for some of you, you relate to Noah. But all of that said, uh, in that case, sometimes it's somebody in your life who is actually a faithful Christian before you. Imitate their faithfulness and spit out their unfaithfulness because they probably weren't perfect. But then he talks about showing diligence towards the full assurance of hope. God gives us our hope. He is our only hope. There is no form of religion that you can take on that will make you a better Christian. But it does take diligence to hear his voice. This hope, Jesus Christ is, is the only sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And he is illustrated in the person of Melchizedek. So he says, you're too immature to understand this, but I'm going to teach it anyway, just in case there's some of you that are ready to receive it. So in Hebrews chapter 7, he goes on to speak about a man by the name of Melchizedek. But before we go there, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, because we want to look at the passage that he's going to talk about. So we can come into what he has to say prepared. Verse 17. By the way, um, one of the signs of a healthy church is that um, when someone turns to a passage, you hear a bunch of pages turning. So you're blessing me right now. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. Genesis 14, verse 17. In this passage, Lot has already moved to Sodom and Gomorrah. And during his time there, he became built into their society. And during that time, because he was not living with Abraham, there was less protection. He was in the city where he loved to be, and yet um, there were battles going on between the kings of the place that he lived, and there's also the other kings surrounding him in the land of Canaan. And so during the course of this... Um, Lot kind of gets taken captive when his king is battled against by another king and they take all of their stuff and they take all the people um, after they've been looted. And in verse, um, in the chapter 14, basically Abraham finds out about it and he takes 300 and some soldiers, gives them weapons, and he says, let's go get Lot. So he goes in and he rescues Lot and in his rescuing of Lot, he ends up being a blessing to the king of Sodom. And in verse 17, it says the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the, the king's valley. And after his return from the defeat of Shedor Laomer, that's a $5 word, and the kings who were with him. And so he's thankful for Abraham intervening and actually giving victory uh, to this king of Shedor Laomer. 
I don't know how to say it, I'm sorry. But, you know, you guys can relate, probably. And the kings who were with him. And so because of Abraham really going in there for his own motive to save his nephew Lot, he ends up saving uh, this king and his stuff. So he's thankful, and he goes to tell Abraham, thank you. And it says there that at just about this time, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, that's his name at this time, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So he's saying, hey, God Most High has given you victory in this battle. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abram gave a tithe, or 10% of all that he owned, to this man, Melchizedek. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. So you've saved my people. Give me my people back, but you can keep all the spoil. And Abram goes on to say, uh, he, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing. He's making an oath here. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours, king of Sodom, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. And so at the end of this victory, this great battle, Abram has a testing time. And the king of Sodom comes up and he wants to tell him thank you, which is reasonable, but he wants to give him the spoil. And at the same time, King Melchizedek shows up and says, Blessed be Abram who has been delivered. The hand of his enemies has been delivered it to him. He's been given victory by God Most High. He's giving glory to God. And then he says, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so he worships this God Most High, and he gives a tithe to Melchizedek, almost like he's a priest. So what you've got to remember is that at this point in the, the history of Abraham's descendants, there's no priesthood, there's no law, there's no sacrificial system, really. But he's a worshiper of God Most High. God's not revealed himself specifically to have a tabernacle or to give him the law or any way to worship. But what you know about the Old Testament saints, hopefully, is as you read Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11 even, is that all these men who heard the voice of God built altars to sacrifice animals to God Most High. And so Abraham's got a choice of what king he's going to honor by receiving from him and then giving glory to that man. And, and so in Genesis 14, 17 through 23, the king of Sodom, the word Sodom actually means depravity or wickedness. And you know that to this day, the word Sodom is not a positive word at all. To be a Sodomite is actually looked down upon, even though we've kind of embraced it as a culture, is that's just how some people live. But sodomy or sodomite is kind of all synonymous with depravity and wickedness, rebellion against God. Abraham would not accept anything from this king. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, as we look at it this morning, uh, the New Testament gives us light into this passage that I've already presumed into this discussion about Genesis chapter 7 verse 1 he says for this Melchizedek king of Salem 
priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. So the, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So think about it. In contrast, king of Sodom is the king of depravity and wickedness by his name. That's what it means. And then Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. So we get to pick what king we follow even. Are you going to follow the king of wickedness, Satan? Or are you going to follow the king of righteousness, which we find out is really an Old Testament type of Jesus? But then he says, and then also, halfway through verse 2, he says, king of Salem, meaning king of peace. The word Salem is rendered Salem in our testament, but the word is shalom, the king of shalom, or Jerusalem, the city of peace. So we see this word coming up over and over again. And so he says, without father, describing Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he is made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood down the road, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, speaking of Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives." Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So I realize that that's a lot to take in. I've been reading it all week. Perhaps you guys are getting hit with it for the first time. So with that in mind, I want to make this a teachable moment. That's a lot for you to receive that on a Sunday morning and then try to process it. It should be. I would encourage you guys, if you know where we're at in Scripture, the beauty about what we do is I'm not going to pick some random Scripture next week and you're going to be caught off guard. You always know what next week's lesson is going to be on. So I would encourage you to read ahead. If you're ever like, I need to spend some time with the Lord and you don't know where to go, turn to the passage we'll be reading next week. I promise you it'll bless you. But in this passage, here we have Melchizedek, and he's listed, and he talks about the passage we just read. But what I want to point out to you is that the king of Salem, or this king of peace, Melchizedek, he's not only a king, but he's also a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, if a king were to try to do the duties of a priest, God would judge him. These were kings from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul ends up being the king, the first king of the nation of Israel. And after one of the battles, or before one of the battles, there's all the enemies of Israel are coming around him. He knows that he doesn't know what to do next, and so he needs to hear a word from the Lord. But not just, it's not like you and I, where we get to just go to Jesus ourselves and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? But he has to wait for a priest to show up to make sacrifices and then to go into the tabernacle or 
or to go into the presence of God and hear from God. And so Saul gets a little nervous, and instead of waiting for the priest to mediate between him and God, he presumes to be able to go in and just talk to God himself. And he actually makes a sacrifice. And, and it was not okay. He, he took on the duties of a priest. And so because he stepped out of his responsibilities and presumptuously approached God based on what he thought was okay, God judged him. But in this case, we have Melchizedek, who is not only a king, King Melchizedek, but he's also a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. He, he just comes out of nowhere. And what scripture says here is, we don't really know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know who his parents are. But he just comes on the scene, and Abraham gives him tithes. Now, in the Old Testament system, nobody tithed to any man. They always tithed to God, but they would always give a tithe or a worship offering, 10% of their goods, to the priesthood. Because the priesthood, even when they entered the land of Canaan, were not given land. They were not given a portion of land. They were not even supposed to provide their own food. What the, all the other 11 tribes would come in and they would make sacrifice, right? I have to think through that, but they, all the other people would come in except for the Levites and they would offer of their increase. They would work, they would provide animal sacrifice, but from some of that they would be able to receive food. They would bring in meat, they would bring in bread, they would bring in grain, they would bring in money to fix the temple and to provide for clothes and and all these things, but they would receive them from the people, but never was there any other priesthood. It was only the Levites who were descendants of Aaron, who were from the tribe of Levi. They were the priests. They were the Levitical workers. They were like deacons in the Old Testament. But what we find out here is that this Melchizedek received a tithe from Abram, and so what he says is, in a way... The Levites, who were not yet born, who were not yet descendants of Abram, because Abram gave a tithe, and they were kind of in his loins, we might say that they were a twinkle in Abram's eye. They weren't yet born, and yet he, their father, gave a tithe to Melchizedek, so the Levite priesthood was actually subservient to the Melchizedek, this higher order of priests. And so he says, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes, which they don't do, but they paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Abraham gave a tithe to him, verse 6. He had no gene genealogy, so in that way he's kind of like Jesus, where he has no father, but he has an earthly stepdad, essentially, or a half-dad, or he's got a family. He's from the line of Joseph because he's adopted by him. But then you have Mary, but then there's a priest of, of a higher order than Aaron in Melchizedek. He's a priesthood that preceded the law and the Levites. And what he's saying about Jesus is that Jesus is of this same priesthood. He's not only the king of righteousness, he's also the king of peace, Jerusalem, as a descendant of David. But then he's also, at the same time, able to be a priest for us. And so we're going to go through this kind of fast because we've already talked about him being a priest, but in verse 11, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from whom which from which no man has officiated at the altar. He says, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning a priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. So he's going to go on to talk about Melchizedek, who we don't ever know that he died. Now, you might say, it doesn't say, so we can't really make conjecture. But what he says here is, he testifies from Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, yours might be in italics. He says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So how do we know that a priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? Because it's written in the Psalms. God spoke through men in the Psalms, and when he speaks, these aren't just songs written by men, but God is prophetically speaking into the nation through them. That's why it's in Scripture. And if God says something's going to happen, it does. His word does not return void. And so he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and an unprofitableness. For the law, this is a key verse, made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So let's think about that for a second. The Ten Commandments, we call them, that are really the top ten. If you ever watch David Letterman, you got the top ten. We used to stay up late to watch David Letterman just so we could see the top ten. Of course, the last one's always kind of a lame one. You're like, eh, and then he just rolls with it. But the top ten are the ones that we focus on. But in the nation of Israel, there were actually 613 commands. And what they did is they thought, if we follow all these rules, we will be made perfect like our God. And we will be different than all the other nations. What, what we find out is if you've ever tried to live according to the top ten, is that they don't make you any better. Matter of fact, all they do is make you frustrated because they prove to you that you are not good enough to be like God. You cannot earn God's favor. The Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments, were never meant to make us go, look how good I did, God. Let me come into heaven. They were always meant to frustrate us and convert us. The psalmist wrote, the law of God is perfect at converting the soul. Because it's, it's meant to be there as a standard. This is God's standard. You want to make it there on your own? Do all this. And then what you're supposed to do is try to do all this and then realize, Lord, help me. I can't make it there on my own. This can't be the way. At which point he can say, you're right, it's not. I sent my son to fulfill those commands. And now if you just trust in his ability to do it, and you trust me for daily living, guess what? Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so he's saying here, the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better 
hope. If your hope is in fulfilling the Ten Commandments, if your hope is by living by the Sermon on the Mount, that is a, that's a bad hope. But the better hope comes in. He not only shows us the way to walk in it, but then he gives us his Holy Spirit, which empowers us. It's the dunamos. It's like putting racing fuel in a sprint car. It makes it do what it has to do. A sprint car is great, and they're fast, but if it's out of gas, it's just as fast as a Prius. It is. It won't go anywhere. Whether it's got a charge or not, that thing won't run. But you put racing fuel in a sprint car, you're about to see some things. And if it's got a good driver, you're about to see some craziness. Those things are ridiculous. I don't know what made me think of sprint cars, but they're just fast and loud. I want one. I don't need one. But he says, um, he goes on to say this, verse 20, and inasmuch as he was made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, talking about the Levites, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing on continuously, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those who high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. And that word perfected didn't mean that Jesus showed up and he wasn't perfect. It means that through his testing and through his sinless life, he was proven and he has proved himself to be what he said he was the Holy Son of God, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so God swore that he would send a priest. And so in verse 11 through 28, he compares and contrasts the Levitical priest with Jesus. And if you look at the picture on the screen, that I, that's actually what they would be dressed like. If you read Leviticus and you see the description, they had the breastplate of righteousness, which has 12 stones that signify the 12 tribes. He went in and didn't just represent one man or one gal or one tribe, but all of them before the presence of God. There was always one who replaced the other one when he died. And so if you got to know the high priest and he knew kind of what you struggle with, he became empathetic and he knew you and he would be able to make sacrifice. But imagine, if you will, you made sacrifice through the same high priest for 30 years and then all of a sudden that guy dies and you got to take on another one. He doesn't know you. He's, he's going to have a different attitude. He might have a different way of doing things. Um, I've heard it described like this. About 2008, I bought a, a house. And at the time, everybody could buy a house. It didn't matter if you had credit or not. There's this big balloon in the market. And as soon as I bought my house, six months later, I had my little payment book, and I'd write out the check, and I'd mail it. 
because I didn't do it on the computer. I don't trust that. And then one day, all of a sudden, I get this thing in the mail that says, hey, we know that you love us and that you've been making payments to us, but we sold your loan. So uh, this other company, they'll take great care of you. I mean, they're the lowest bidder, uh, or they're the highest bidder, but you know, we, we love you, but there's this other loan company that's going to take care of you, and now you write checks to them. You're like, I just, I just started trusting you guys, and I got to trust in somebody else? And so my point is, imagine if you're high priest dealing with your sin, you're confessing things, they're making sacrifice on your behalf, and then all of a sudden, new guy. And so, um, but the next Levite in line is whoever it would be. You didn't get to pick. Uh, he needed to offer up sacrifices for his own sins. He was imperfect. He offered sacrifices continually. The work was never finished. He was always doing this. There was no, there was no chair in the Holy of Holies. The work was never done. But then we look at Jesus. He's a priesthood that does not end. He lives forever. You never have to get to know a new priest. He knows your deal. He's intimately involved. He's sworn to be a priest by God himself after the law. He's sinless. No need to sacrifice. He has been proven to be proven forever. And he's offered himself as the sacrifice. And he's seated. I don't know about you guys, but when I have a work day, and I get done working and I sit down, it's great, because I'm like, I'm done with my work for the day. But it's always like, until the next work day. And then I gotta start over. But Jesus isn't standing up every day going, okay, back to work, time to make the donut. He's, instead, what he's doing is he's seated down. He intercedes for us. And so, Jesus, the perfect high priest. So the question is, or the statement is, we still sin. Maybe you guys don't, but I do. I still sin. So wh who's my high priest? How do I deal with my sin? Now, some of you might say, well, I don't really have a high priest. I'm not like that. I'm not Catholic, or I'm not Jewish, or I'm not. But we have a high priest. The Israelites had to get spiritual help when they sinned. This was what the high priest was for. They didn't just cover it up and go, I'll move on with my day. They stopped. They went and made sacrifice. They confessed their sins vocally. And then God helped them deal with it through the high priest. Who or where do you turn when you sin? I'm assuming I'm in a room full of sinners. We're here not because we're perfect, not because we're not hypocrites like those other guys. We're here because we are faulty. We, we need help. Let me ask you, as a believer in Christ, are you going to the one, the only one place to go? Or are you letting your list build up? Jesus is on his throne of grace. We have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2 says that in verse 1 and 2. He says, My children, John writing, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And he himself is the payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And so he says there, our advocate is with the Father. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 9, it basically says we must confess honestly the truth that sets us free, but this confession has to be to him. 
the only place to receive true forgiveness and cleansing. So as I wrap this up, as we're out of time, and as we get ready to partake of communion, I want to encourage you. You are not the only one that struggles with sin. Because if you were, then God wouldn't have sent a high priest to deal with the sins of the whole world. As believers, we still struggle, if we're honest. The question is, are you walking around still weighed down with the weight of sin and shame? And if you are, do you realize you don't have to be? There is hope. He is still willing to deal with your sin. He died for your past sins that he already forgave you of. Let it go. I heard that song about 800 times yesterday at a birthday party. My niece, sorry, my niece got this microphone and it plays the wonderful song, Let It Go, Let It Go. And of course, it's talking about letting go of the fear of man and just going off and being by yourself. And many people do that. Let me encourage you as believers, that's not our calling. When we go off to ourselves, we're actually putting ourselves in danger. Sheep need to be together. But the other encouragement I'd give you is to let it go. If God's forgiven you, let it go. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west, he casts it into the bottom of the ocean. And when he sets down the new heaven and the new earth, guess what doesn't exist? There's no ocean. None. He's getting rid of it. It's all over the Old Testament and the New. So if he says it's forgiven, it is. But then I would encourage you, if you're still walking around in shame and guilt, repent. Repent. Give it up and say, God, I agree that what this thing, I'm going to stop calling it a mistake. I'm going to ca start calling it sin. And I'm going to say, Lord, please forgive me. I know it's wrong. But also help me to stop because it's robbing me of joy. And then guess what? He's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unri unrighteousness. And then give us the power to not do it anymore. We have no excuse because we have a perfect high priest. Melchizedek was a type of that. Many people believe that he was actually Jesus that came onto the scene to speak words of encouragement to Abraham. Might have been. But my take is he was exactly like Jesus. Just like Joshua just like Joseph, these are all men that if you look at their lives, you saw Jesus. When we were talking this morning, I was talking with somebody that was adopted, and they were adopted at a young age, and, and what she said was, when I tell people I was adopted, they're like, you're adopted? You're just like your parents. You, you can't be adopted. You look like them. You sound like them. You don't have an accent, you know, whatever it is. And I said, isn't that how it's supposed to be? If you're raised by someone, you're going to be like them. You're going to be like your dad. You're going to be like your mom. Good, bad, and otherwise. You know? Um, but the other side of it is, as Christians, if we don't look like our father, it, it's a problem because we're not really trusting in our father. And so, but the, the grace note is that, that it's never too late to start saying, Lord, I don't look like you. I should look like you. I should smell like you. I should sound like you. I should be like you. I'm not. Please change me. So as we get ready to take communion, I want to encourage you during this time. We're going to play a song. You guys can spend some time with Jesus. Come up and get the elements.